The human genome has long been sequenced. We now have the ability to test anyone for almost any genetic alteration or mutation. And testing is increasingly being done in the direct-to-consumer setting. What could possibly go wrong? Well, in healthy asymptomatic individuals, the risk of a false positive result is astonishingly high, and in many, if not most individuals, we find genetic variants, the complete significance of which is still unknown. Has our ability to do genetic testing outstripped our ability to accurately report and classify the results? We're joined by Dr. Julie Eggington, co-founder and CEO of the Center for Genomic Interpretation. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Dr. Julie Eggington is co-founder and CEO of the Center for Genomic Interpretation. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You spent time in your career at many of the more high-profile genetic testing companies, including Myriad Genetics as well as 23andMe. Could you tell us what experiences in your early career led you to found the Center for Genomic Interpretation? And could you tell us what is the mission of the Center for Genomic Interpretation? You mentioned early career, so I'm actually going to go a little bit further back. I would say my interest in quality, you know, and how that relates to the, the mission for the Center for Genomic Interpretation. And, and our mission, by the way, is, is to drive quality in clinical genetics, genomics, and precision medicine. My passion for quality actually started in grad school when I was getting my PhD. What I noticed is that I was having a tough time replicating the work of many different publications, you know, from scientists all over the world. You know, I'd reach out to these scientists, I'd, I'd ask for their procedures, we'd go back and forth for a while, and then I'd just say to them, I can't replicate. And, and then they just go quiet and they kind of disappear. And that's when I got really interested in the idea of, well, how, how are we scientists actually doing? I'm a biochemist by training. And, you know, I started to pay attention to the literature and the research that's done in tracking on whether or not studies can be replicated. And so even before I got my job, my first job at Myriad Genetics, you know, in anything related to genetics outside of biochemistry, I knew that we had a fundamental problem in the scientific community of, sci of experiments not being uh, able to be replicated. And that is a fundamental issue with, that we have in quality. So I've always had that interest going back to grad school. And so, so it became a, a personal mission of mine to always de deliver quality work and work, particularly, you know, as I entered this clinical space, work that I would feel comfortable for somebody to stamp as a clinical product and to, to turn that over to a patient. So ultimately, when 23andMe let go of the team or the next-gen sequencing team that was being developed out here in Salt Lake City, me and another guy that was on that team, Dr. Rob Burton, we decided to create a consulting company where we would help primarily diagnostic laboratories, genetic diagnostic laboratories, but also direct consumer laboratories across the U.S. just to help them get better at their science, uh, focusing primarily at the time on variant classification. Uh, we, we worked with a lot of companies. We had a lot of fantastic experiences. And what we recognized as we were working with these companies is that there was always a tension, sometimes healthy, sometimes unhealthy, often unhealthy, between investor demands and the demands of high quality work that ultimately leads to results coming out of laboratories as being accurate or less than accurate. When we were thinking about what we wanted to do with our mission, that quality was our driving mission, and we repeatedly saw this, this issue of tension between investor demands, which is profitability, and the needs of the patient, which is accuracy, we decided that if we wanted to really, truly, truly and absolutely, unquestionably devote ourselves 
to what's best for the patient, which is accurate results, then we had to eliminate this tension. We had to eliminate this challenge of, of profitability demands from investors. And so the way to do that is to reorganize into a 501c3 nonprofit where you are now driven by a mission. The executive team answers to a board who's going to measure you by how closely you're adhering to your mission. And again, our mission is to drive quality in clinical genetics, genomics, and precision medicines. Our mission is crystal clear. And as we work with stakeholders in the industry, it's crystal clear what it is we're trying to do. You're introducing the concept of variant interpretation. We're hearing about quality and accuracy. So I think that's something many people may not appreciate. So how did we get to this point? Because I think people understand the concept of testing and they understand when they get the results, but there's that piece in the middle of variant interpretation and then the, the possibility of it being high or low quality or accurate or inaccurate. So how did we really get to that point? Um, and this actually predates my experience with genetics. So back in the earlier days of genetics, you were always testing folks that, uh, and primarily um, sick children, that had very pronounced disease, that these particular gene had been mapped that was very specific to that type of disease. And it was presumed that if you found any genetic change, we used to call them mutations, now we call them variants. If you found any genetic change or variant, it was probably the causal, it was the thing that was causing the disease. And we were comparing that to what we thought was a good reference set. Uh, back then, if the lab doing a unique type of gene sequencing, single gene sequencing for, in these pediatric cases, had sequenced 50 normal persons, they would construct kind of a their own reference sequence. And they would say, okay, if I found in a sick child, if I found a genetic variant in this sick child, that I'm not seeing in these 50 other healthy folk, then that variant is probably the, the causal variant. And so, and they would publish that. In many cases, they would publish those findings. And so over time, particularly in, um, in about, oh, I'm trying to remember, 2011-ish, when the Thousand Genomes Project first came out, when for the first time any, anywhere anybody had sequenced many hundreds, it was almost a thousand people, that were general population when we recognized, oh, hey, hang on, genetic variants are actually very, very common. And just because you find a rare variant in an individual doesn't mean that that's the cause of any type of disease. Now, the problem is, is that it was still, it was locked in the minds of clinical scientists that you found a rare variant that's in, in a gene that matches the disease that my patient is, I think that they have, therefore that's causal. So that locked in mindset has actually maintained, even though it's been disproven, numerically disproven. And the other problem is that we had decades of scientific literature, uh, these case reports and, and these discoveries that had locked in the ideas that many of these genetic variations were actually causal of disease. And now when we're going back and we're reevaluating in light of what we understand now, many of these so-called um, causal or pathogenic or deleterious genetic variations, there's just not enough evidence. And so we have a body of literature claiming one thing, and now a reevaluation is suggesting that they're just not what we thought they were. But how do you unlock that? How do you convince the clinical stakeholders that what they have believed in the past may not be true. Right. So is it fair to say our ability to find these variants, our ability to do genetic testing and sequencing 
has outpaced our ability to classify or understand the significance of the variants that we find? Absolutely. Uh, the, the, that is the core of the problem, is that um, the, the tech to sequence has outstripped the tech to interpret what the sequence means. The ACMG has a variant classification system, which I believe was first published in 2015, and they have a five-category system, pathogenic, likely pathogenic, variant of uncertain significance, and then benign and likely benign. Many people may not appreciate that there's somewhat a degree of subjectivity to this system, and the way some of these classifications are made is a bit nebulous or uses multiple criteria. Could you help us understand how that works a little better? Certainly, certainly. So it's important to note that the 2015 document um, was really a consensus document of opinion. There still isn't enough data to really lock in high evidence-based classification criteria. Uh, so what that means is that document and the updates that um, the ACMG are working on now really represent a compromised document of people that are doing their best in the absence of data. And so, you know, we're in the ACMG is in process of updating those 2015 guidance documents now and will do so in the future. But uh, what, what that means is that there was a lot of subjectivity and a lot of legacy assumptions that found them their way into the ACMG 2015 guidance document. Many of them are being rooted out in this in this newer version, so I'm told. We, we just simply don't have enough data to know yet. So there is quite a bit of subjectivity. It's, it's very, very common for the same genetic variant. The same patient can be sequenced at four different laboratories. And even if they all do the sequencing in the same way, which, do, you know, they don't always do the sequencing the same way, but let's pretend that they did and they found the same sequence variants in a set of genes, it would be actually kind of expected in many instances that you might get two or three different types of reports with different types of conclusions for a given patient. Some laboratories are going to be more aggressive. They're going to be, uh, they're going to use evidence that perhaps they just, and they, they're unlikely to admit this, but perhaps they just read the abstract of a publication. They were unable, they didn't have time or they were unable to purchase the original publication. Even if they had the original set of publications, perhaps the scientists that were, were reviewing those publications weren't experts in the data they were reviewing, and so they just had to trust the authors. And yet we know that more of 50, that more than 50% of, of clinical science literature turns out to be wrong in time. When, when we learn more, you, you, know, you discover that that's earlier publications were just flat wrong for a variety of reasons. And so what you really need are scientists that can critically evaluate the data that they're reading. You need the scientists actually reading the data, which is happening less and less in many um, laboratories. And so, so there is an enormous amount of subjectivity to what goes into a classification, and that's why we see such enormous variability across laboratories. So when you receive a report with a result, who is the arbiter of the degree of pathogenicity or the classification of the variant? Is it derived from a central repository, or is it ultimately the judgment of the person signing out the report? Legally, it lands on the person signing out the report. 
the board certified clinician that is literally signing the report, legally it lands on them. They are responsible for the accuracy of everything on that report. The way it happens in laboratories most often is that depending upon the size and the construct of the laboratory, it is done you know, by different teams of people. It might be farmed out overseas. It might be done in a fully automated fashion by software that somebody's trusting way too much. But ultimately, the legal responsibility is on the board certified clinician signing out that report. This classification system is based to some extent on probabilities, which makes it very difficult to understand. For example, it's been discussed that the target likelihood of pathogenicity in the likely pathogenic group is 90%. Uh, Could you help us understand better what this means exactly? So those percentages are actually not in the ACMG guidelines. Those percentages have been talked about and, and debated amongst clinicians. And so, for, you know, to use your example of likely pathogenic, some clinicians feel that that number should be 90%, some feel 95%, some feel 99 some feel 99.5%. When you actually do the math, anything less in most of the disease states um, that are not terribly specific, anything less than about 99% is going to be catastrophically awful. You're going to throw more false positives than true positives. So, uh, and, and not many folks have done the math. We're, we're working on publishing um, our modeling of that soon. The, those numbers, and there's no way to measure those numbers anyway, is the problem. So even if you wanted even if you said, okay, I'm going to have a stringency here of, of 99.5% specificity of my variant classification technique here. The problem is, is that as the ACMG guidelines are now, they're not truly quantitative. They're additive, but they're not quantitative in terms of being evidence-based and based a lot on statistics. And so we can't even measure, we simply can't even measure the likelihood that we've gotten something right. And so by false positives, that could mean a false positive laboratory result as well as a false positive classification result, so to speak? So yeah, in the context I just used, it was false positive um, classification. So we're assuming that the, that the sequencing was correct, a variant was accurately identified, and now you're going on to the, the classification component. And in this classification, five-tier classification system, right smack in the middle is this dreaded category known as the VUS, the variant of uncertain significance. The number of variants that fall into the category is quite high, and it creates quite a quandary for everyone involved. Yes, and I think it should be much higher than it is. More variants should fall into that category? Yeah, very, very many more variants should be variants of uncertain significance. Yes. And I think it's only a quandary in people's hearts. So if you think about yourself as a clinician, you know, I'm not a clinician, but I'm going to imagine myself as one. I've identified a patient and I've said, okay, uh, I think you might have this disease. And it's important to note that everything we're talking about here is in the context of hereditary or germline disease. Uh, this conversation would take a kind of a different turn if we were talking about acquired mutations that exist in, in tumor genetics. So everything we're talking about is germline. So if, if, I'm a, if I were a clinician and I see a patient and I'm like, okay, uh, I think you, have the, you might have this, this hereditary disease. I'm going to order a test for you. And then that test comes back, and what I see on it is is variant of uncertain significance. My bias, my my, I mean, I already chose that test thinking they had that disease. So I'm looking at that variant of uncertain significance, and I'm thinking, oh, that's got to be it. That's got to be what's causing this disease because I ha- already have this innate bias. In reality, depending upon the disease state, 
between 90 to 99.5% of variants of uncertain significance are going to eventually be discovered as benign. And so the prior probability of NEVUS being the cause of the disease is actually extraordinarily low. But that's not the innate bias that clinicians will have. And so because of that, VUS causes conflict amongst clinicians. And it really shouldn't. We should embrace VUS. We should say, hey, you got a VUS. We'll just check in with the lab, you know, every six months, every 12 months or so, and just move on. But VUS causes conflict, I think, because people don't appreciate that the probability of it being pathogenic is very low. Oh, absolutely. In that light, would it be better not to report VUSs? Or what obligations do clinicians as well as testing companies have in providing results to patients where they don't fully understand the impact of these results or they don't have an accurate or unknown determination of the of the variant, knowing that this could cause grief and anxiety in the patient and may potentially lead to overtreatment? Certainly. And here's my plug, of course, for genetic counselors. I think that... Um, you know, whenever possible, this this is the realm where genetic counselors really shine, is uh, is being able to counsel patients about that uncertainty, and trying to mitigate the worry of, around that type of uncertainty. In terms of should we or should we not report variants of uncertain significance, uh, you know, some some it's an ongoing debate in laboratories. Definitely, I think that. In my opinion, if you're a laboratory that has chosen not to report variants of uncertain significance, I think you need to have a massive disclaimer that says you probably have them, we just haven't told you you have them. So that means we might amend a report in years to come to tell you you've got something important that you had no idea about. Because I understand this science, I'm, I would rather get a report that tells me everything. I'd rather get reports that tell me all about my benign variations, because there's a very minute, extremely remote chance that any genetic variant that somebody classified as benign might actually be causal. It could be wrong in the future. So I'd rather know I had some type of genetic variation than none at all. But I'm an extreme case. You know, I, I get this science and I, I understand it. And uh, so I can see why for, for business reasons and for the typical use case, you may not want to do that. But I think in general, the safest thing for a laboratory to do is to definitely report the VUS, the variance of uncertain significance, but um, demote them, put them in some remote part on the report with lots of language about, hey, this is for your information only. They are unlikely to result as any you know pathogenic mutation in the future, but you need to know that they potentially could and here they are. That's what I that that's I think is the safest middle ground, but you know, there's ongoing and constant debate about what to do with them. You mentioned genetic counseling. Now would you say there's been somewhat of a renaissance or rebirth of the profession of genetic counselor in this new era? I would say, yeah, a greater need. In some instances, it's really interesting. We're, we're seeing a bifurcation of opinion about genetic counseling. So um, in some hospital systems, I'm seeing administrators recognize the absolute need and they, they can't hire fast enough. In other hospital systems and clinical systems, I'm seeing longtime well-respected genetic counselors are being let go because doctors are feeling that they don't need them. And I think that is a profound mistake. I think that genetic counselors bring something that we need in this industry. I also, I'm pragmatic and I understand that not every or even most 
patients can see a genetic counselor, or else we'll have, you know, 12 month waiting lists. But, you know, we, we need to follow, you know, some, some great techniques that have already been demonstrated as very successful for patients to be triaged to genetic counselors when appropriate. And given the possibility of finding all these variants of unknown significance, is the role of genetic counseling moving into the area of advising patients and physicians whether testing should be ordered or not in the first place? Uh, definitely. Definitely. I think that um, continues to be a, a strong component of genetic counseling. I don't think it's entirely necessary that they need to be up front if the clinician is empowered with fantastic tools. Some of the EMR tools that we've had demonstrated in some health systems are excellent that they've been built in conjunction with uh, very knowledgeable genetic counselors and they can flag patients as long as the, as long as the doctor is following protocol and can you know call their genetic counselor on demand. Um, I think that upfront need, uh, we're finding creative solutions where we don't necessarily need the genetic counselor upfront. Now, they, many genetic counselors might beg to differ. There are some catastrophic examples that they are very willing to tell me about. I think that genetic counselors, their, their particular strength is coming on that back end of what to do with that information when you get it. And speaking of tests being ordered, we've seen a large rise in direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies. Can you give us your take on how that industry has evolved? Yeah, you know, I think, um, and I'm going to be a little bit more avant-garde here than I think many people in my industry are, and, and that's partly because I did work for 23andMe. But I do think it is possible for a direct-to-consumer company to do excellent science. I think it is possible for them to communicate the results in a very um, responsible way and to really mitigate the risks that many folks are worried about. Just because it's possible doesn't mean um, some direct consumer companies are doing it that way. It takes a well-thought-out strategy. It takes a lot of discussion with folks that are experienced in the industry, that have lots of concerns, that have seen the worst happen. It takes a slow and methodical approach to get to that point and get there right. Silicon Valley attitude, move fast and break things doesn't necessarily uh, give you that environment where you can move slow and, and get that consumer genomics right. And so um, I think we're going to see, I think we're going to see some companies doing it right. And I think it's going to have profound and important impact on saving lives. I think we're going to see some companies do many different things wrong and have a profound um, tragic impact, uh, impact on consumers. And so it's important that, um, we be aware of that spectrum and we be talking about that spectrum. And this has certainly not gone unnoticed by the ACMG or American College of Medical Genetics. They issued a policy statement in 2019 looking to discourage screening of asymptomatic healthy individuals. Secondly, to somewhat distance themselves or discourage the use of their brand in panels which are increasingly being offered by direct consumer testing companies and then thirdly i think they're trying to discourage what they call unproven interventions in patients in whom genetic alterations are identified uh, julie what are your thoughts on this policy statement yeah i think i think what this is really doing is exposing the cracks in kind of how clinical genetics has come to be and what we are willing to accept is actionable within clinical genetics, actually. I think that what we're seeing is that um, in the context of, of a clinical setting where patients are already working with a genetic counselor or a geneticist of some type, that maybe we were willing to be a little bit adventurous in types of results where we're willing to return to patients. 
But when you step outside of that and you look at some, you know, 63-year-old grandmother who's doing a test to find out if she's Irish or British, and now you're going to tell her to go get, you know, intervention surgery perhaps on her breasts, maybe not at that age, I don't know, but, um, you know, or her daughters who might carry the same variant. And, you know, this is where we begin to expose the cracks of clinical genetics, I think. How much do we really trust that a pathogenic variant is a pathogenic variant? And I, I think we're really beginning, this is really forcing us to have that conversation in the community. If we think something causes disease, do we really think that? Does it cause disease in every patient or only some? And if it only causes disease in some people, is it really pathogenic? And so I think it is really causing a, um, a lot of cognitive dissonance in people's minds. And so I, you know, my, my read on the ACMG uh, document is to say, um, let's just take this slow. Here's what we felt comfortable with the uh, the industry and its excitement for genetics and consumer genetics has perhaps taken it further. Let's take it slower than what we're doing now. And I think that's wise. I think we need to collect more information. I think that many of these consumer genetics programs should probably um, pause or slow down and just collect a whole ton of data and reevaluate the assumptions that have come out of the clinical community. And it might be that many of the assumptions and many of the claims that we've made about certain genes are actually not true. And I think that it would be wise for consumer genetics companies to test those claims. So it seems that we could reduce false positives and unproven interventions by both reducing screening of asymptomatic individuals and doing a much better job in terms of variant classification and more reliably identifying which variants are likely to be pathogenic. There's a huge variability even in the clinical field, particularly in the clinical field, as to what makes something pathogenic and that's going to uh, cause a problem for consumer companies. I think that consumer companies need to be operating at a specificity for variant classification in excess of 99.9%, which is something that um, is, is frankly unheard of in the clinical space. And so in order to avoid sending healthy public to, in order to, to get interventions, I think that they need to really ramp up that amount, that expectation of evidence in order to to classify anything as pathogenic for the general population. And in what's been a curious development in the 2000s, we now are blessed with social media. So what used to be perhaps a more intimate encounter between a doctor and a patient, we are now able to incorporate influence uh, from others in our lives and often people we don't know, such as celebrities. Most famously, Angelina Jolie shared her story very publicly. What do you think of these developments? I think there's pros and cons to this, mostly pros myself. Um, I think that it's, it, I mean, let's take the Angelina Jolie case. It alerted many, many men and women that had uh, histories, strong histories of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer in their families that they needed to go talk to a, a genetics professional. I think that was an enormous benefit. I worry when, uh, when I read stories in the media, whether it be written by the, the celebrity themselves or written by somebody close to the celebrity or the physician that treated the celebrity. 
I have yet to read one of these articles that had everything correct in how they interpreted what's going on with genetics. Uh, but I think these articles are important because it, it raises public awareness. So I would, you know, if there's a celebrity listening to this, I would recommend that please write about your experience. Um, please promote your experience so that more pe people's lives can be saved. As you're doing it, please work with a genetic counselor <laughs> before you put something in, in, uh, in the press or in a tweet. So, because uh, what you say does have profound impact on the pub, you know, on the public, and we want to make sure that what you're saying is actually clinically accurate. And so, if you wouldn't mind taking the extra step to find yourself a genetic counselor to to review that content first, that would be amazing. Julie Eggington, thank you so much for coming on. How can folks learn more about you and the Center for Genomic Interpretation? Uh, feel free to go to our website, www.genomicinterpretation.org. Click the Contact Us button, and uh, we'll be able to answer many questions you might have. Uh, we definitely, if, if you're a, a laboratory, if you're a clinician, if you're a clinical group, a hospital system, insurance company, we want to help you um, get better genetics in your hands. So uh, please do reach out, and we're here to help. Our guest has been Dr. Julie Eggington. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. Thank you.